Uh, our lead pastors are actually in southern Idaho right now, J.O. and Ray Dean. They're ministering at a church called Legacy. Uh, it's a sister church of ours. And uh, so we're really glad that they're there and we're blessing them. And so today, you get me. And, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm really, yeah, praise God. I'm excited to, to deliver this word that I feel like God has put on my heart. Before I do that, I just want to recognize a few very special people. My aunt and uncle from Southern California are here, April and Pat, and we are so, so thankful. I don't think that I've seen you guys in over 10 years, which is really wild. We're so, so glad that you could be with us today. So welcome. Can we welcome them? We have been in a series, we just started a series last week called God Is. It's all about the attributes of God. The reason why we would do a series like this is that uh, the popular notion in culture is that part of the purpose of life is that we just need to go and find ourselves. But we know that actually what we're here to do is, is, is more so discover who God is, and that as we discover who God is, we actually find out who we are. Not the other way around. Not we go find ourselves and then we decide what God is. You guys feel me? So um, I'm really excited about this series. I loved last week's message, God is Father. It was all about the Father heart of God. The, the image that's going to stick in my head if you were, if you were here was, was my dad just with his big flower. And he's like, oh, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me. And then all of a sudden he goes, what it should be is he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. I just thought, Yes. That's very good. Today, uh, the, the message is called God is Just. And everyone got really excited about that description. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh no. I promise, just is good. Just is a very good thing. We're going to be looking at two primary passages from Scripture today. That is Isaiah 42 and Matthew chapter 12. Now, Isaiah is one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, if you've ever read through the prophets in the Old Testament, how, how many here have read through the old prophets in the, the prophets in the Old Testament? Okay, cool. Yeah, we got some, got some good readership up in here at the 1111. Um, one thing that you'll notice in the, the tone of the Old Testament prophets is they can be very corrective in nature and cautionary. Fair enough. If you read the prophets, you know I'm being... I'm being, I'm being gentle, <laughs> being a little gentle, um, but there's also some, some really beautiful imagery, prophetic imagery of the Messiah in the prophets, and especially in the book of Isaiah, we see him prophesy about this coming Messiah, this savior king who's coming to deliver not only Israel, but all of humankind, and in chapter 42, Isaiah is prophesying about this Messiah, whom God calls his servant. And uh, he tells how he will bring justice in the earth. So we're going to look at Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, and he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Now we're going to turn pretty far, not too far, but pretty far forward to Matthew chapter 12. Now, the gospel of Matthew is Matthew's account of the story of Jesus, essentially, the good news of Jesus. 
And one thing you'll notice if you've read Matthew is that he has a particular focus. It would seem that his, his primary audience would be Jewish people. Now, why, why would I say that? It seems his particular focus is proving that, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah that the Old Testament was prophesying about. Now, why, why, why would I make the argument that he's making that focus? You'll notice in Matthew, probably more than any of the other gospel accounts, how much he quotes the Old Testament scriptures. Right from the get-go, as you are reading the first four chapters or so, we see it's full of Old Testament scriptures that he's saying, look, 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 all along, this is, has been pointing to this Jesus. So in light of that, in Matthew chapter 12, he's actually doing just that. Now, kind of the background of what we're seeing in chapter 12 when Matthew does quote the Old Testament is Jesus has just violated the Sabbath according to the tradition of the Pharisees. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. He violated the Sabbath according to the tradition of the Pharisees. Now, Seth, why would you make that clarification? Why does that matter? Well, because what he did was he healed a man on the Sabbath in a synagogue, not actually against the Torah. And when I say the Torah, I mean uh, the, the, the book of instruction. I mean that as the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, it wasn't against the Torah for him to, to do that act. It was actually a very beautiful thing that he did. But what it was violating was the pharisaical tradition collection of, I'm not going to say scriptures, collection of writings called the Talmud. He was violating the commentary upon the Torah. That's a very important distinction for us to remember when we're thinking about the rules that we put in place that God has not put in place. So in this moment, he recognizes that the Pharisees are upset. He sees this and he departs from the synagogue. And you know what he does along the way? This is, I, this is something I love about Jesus. He goes, it's like, it's like you can picture him. And if you've ever seen The Chosen, there's, there's an episode that kind of depicts this moment. Um, and, and he's like walking out and you can just see he's got maybe a little bit of this grit. And of course, it's not sinful grit because Jesus is perfect. But he's like, mm, you have so missed the heart of God. For you to be ticked at me and say that I am a violator of God's law for healing someone on the Sabbath day, how far can you get from the heart of God and still breathe? And you can see him as he goes. What does he do? Uh, by the way, I'm going to heal everyone who's following me as I go because I just want you to know I'm the guy. I'm the guy. Just so you know, you might feel really good about yourself saying, well, he has violated our tradition. I'm the guy. Anyways, this is where we find Jesus in the book of Matthew chapter 12. He's quoting Isaiah 42. Now we're going to see a little bit of different language than we saw in Isaiah 42. There's a couple reasons, a few different reasons why this might be the case. First of all, Matthew very well could have been quoting from a, a, a version that he was reading called the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The, the version of the Old Testament that we read today is actually pulled from the original Hebrew. So there are some language variances that may be in play. And also... This is a little bit hard to, do, to explain, but how many of you know that in the United States, we are a part of what is called Western culture? Fair enough? And a part of Western culture, one of our values is, uh, one way that could be described is we think very Greekly. We think Greek. 
What do I mean by that? We are very much about specificity. We're about empiricism. We're about things to the dot and tittle. We're about, honestly, we're about the letter. We kind of are. It's kind of our tendency. And so in this culture, it was not abnormal for the disciples, for people to quote the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, idea for idea rather than word for word because that was culturally acceptable. It it was a different thought pattern. It was an Eastern mindset. Does that make sense? Okay, so this might be a couple reasons why we see some language variants here. So starting in verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed them, and he healed them all. Gosh, I love that guy. And ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it is living and active, and that if our hearts would be good soil today, that we would be transformed, that we would be transformed by your word spoken and proclaimed. We receive from you today, Lord. We ask that you would change us, God, that you would mature us into the fullness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask a few questions, and I'm going to try to cover almost everyone in the room. If I miss you, I'm sorry. How many of you have either played an organized sport, are a parent of a child who's played an organized sport, or you're a fan of a particular organized sport that's either professional or collegiate? (laughs) Wow. There's a lot of people not raising their hands. I'm really sorry. I thought I was going to... Man, I tried to cover it. But I think you will be able to relate, even if none of those things are true uh, about you. So there's this thing that happens... In sports, uh, there, there's a referee, or it could be called an umpire. I guess there's other names, but those are the two that stick out to me, referee or umpire. And uh, there, there's a situation in which the referee makes uh, a call, right? And uh, the call is against your team. It's not in favor of your team, okay? It's a very close call, almost too close to make the call. But you kind of feel sure that it's the wrong call. Maybe part of that is a bias inside of you because it's against your team, but you're pretty sure that they made the wrong call. And so, in our culture, the only logical response in that situation is to explode in outrage. (laughs) Right? That's what we do. It's like a millisecond. It's a millisecond of knowing whether it's a good call or not, but it was against our team, and we know that that was a terrible call. And that referee is going to hear me through the TV at how upset I am at him or her at that call. I can tell by the laughs that there's a lot of people who have done that in the room, including myself. But then there's this phenomenon. A few plays later, another call is made. This time, it's for your team. And this time, It's not close. And it is definitely the wrong call. We're talking first baseman gets the ball, 
the base runner still has four steps to go and they call him safe. But it's for your team. So what is your response, logically? Maybe it's a little bit more mild. Maybe it's just a raising of the eyebrows and, huh, I'll just (laughs) silently appreciate that call. Or maybe you celebrate and you're like, yeah, oh my goodness, yes, yes. Or you might even go so far as to say, great call. (laughs) When you know that it was a terrible call. We've done this? I think we've done this. Now, hopefully, uh, even though we're able to reflect on this uh, reality lightheartedly, hopefully we know that uh, that's wrong. Some of the really competitive people in here are going, no, it's not. (laughs) They're going, that's exactly how one should behave. That is spot on how sports are done. And I'm not really here to call out the ultra-competitive today. That's not really the point. Not here to call out the overzealous soccer moms or baseball dads. I am here to make a point, and that's this. Over the past year and a half, we have, I would say that the topic of justice has become maybe one of the most hot-button words in our culture hot-button ideas in our culture. And uh, some of you actually might be sitting here today already uncomfortable with how many times I've said that word, even though most of the repetitions were actually directly quoting scripture. If that's you, just take a moment to reflect. Even before we saw things kind of come to a culmination point uh, last summer in regards to... uh, Basically, I would just say sociopolitical tensions that we were seeing... There was already plenty of debate about how justice should be properly defined and administered. Now, we come here to one of the great benefits and the great drawbacks of postmodern thinking. Now, when I say that term, I, I, I don't want to be confused. Do, do, are we familiar with the term postmodern? Postmodern? So... Uh, a lot of people would describe our era that we live in right now as the postmodern era. And in an era before, it might have been called the, the modern era, and then there were other eras before. And each era, in a sense, has its own set of values, thought patterns, traditions, ways of perceiving reality. One of the benefits of the postmodern era, one of the actually good expressions of postmodern thinking, is that there is this tendency to challenge old ways of thinking and and, and, and traditions and patterns that aren't actually rooted in truth, but have still been passed from generation to generation without any real grappling about why we do what we do or say what we say. And that kind of challenge is actually a very good and healthy thing because it leads us to a deeper understanding of truth. And it leads us to be able to potentially walk more in the fullness of what Jesus has called us to. Does that make sense? Is everyone following me so far? However, there's another side of postmodern thinking that is a great drawback, and I would say even perhaps a danger. And that is this. 
that rather than only weeding out those thought patterns and traditions and philosophies that were not rooted in truth, we take it to such an extreme that we make a claim that there is no objective truth. Or that if there is an objective truth, that we don't have access to it. And this is the kicker, because the conclusion that it often leads to in our culture is that because one of those things are true, ironically, now all perspectives have equal weight in the truth. Because if there's no objective truth, then who are you to say that my perspective isn't just as close to the truth as other perspective? See, the problem is that there is truth. And much of it, not all of it, but much of it is observable and testable. And not to burst any bubbles, but not every perspective has equal share in that truth. That's the nature of truth. It means that some things are correct and some things are not. That's the nature of reality. Some things are real and some things are not. Now, many of you, as I'm saying all this, you go, well, duh, Seth. Anyone who's been here for the past couple years in the United States, in the Western world, in the world, knows that. It takes 10 minutes on mainstream media to figure that out. Or just watch two minutes. <laughs> yeah. Or just watching a couple YouTube videos of college students being interviewed about their beliefs. I'm, I have nothing against formal education. I'm in college myself right now. But some of the fruit that we're seeing come out of our academic institutions is plum terrifying. And the reason why it's plum terrifying is not just because we disagree with it. It's because it's not truth. It's because there is a, there is a loosening on the grip of reality, shared factual reality. And what has been brought to the surface is this novel concept of my truth, which is really quite a clever phrase if you think about it. And it sounds a lot like an old familiar adversary that I know of. Taking something that's real and true, just putting a little twist on it. Just a little twist. Just the only thing about a little twist is that everything's on a trajectory, right? So you're on this path and you twist this much. In 10 miles, those two points will not be visible to each other. They'll be so far apart. My truth, what it does is it values personal experience and opinion over shared factual reality. And it's dangerous because it requires, it demands that society lives in a non-reality in order to be unoffensive. Now, the reason I bring this to your attention, or maybe it's already been to your attention and I just kind of re-bring it to the front of your brain, <laughs> it's not so that we can have a time of collective outrage. It's not so that we can cheer about how much we agree about all the ways that America is going to hell in a handbasket. It's not for any of those reasons. That is not the point at all. I come to you actually today to bring a message of hope. Yeah. 
Not of outrage, but of hope that God still owns the truth. And I have a question and a claim for you. My question is this. In the midst of our disgust at the highly subjective, emotionally driven claims of secular culture about justice and other topics, have we, not so unlike the way we handle calls made by referees, either for or against our team, given ourselves a pass on how emotionally driven and subjective that we have become on these topics? Have we become the pot pointing the finger at the kettle? I'm concerned about that. I'm asking that question because I'm concerned that the answer might be yes. And my claim is this. Regardless, not irregardless, because there is truth. And using irregardless in this situation is not good or true or just. It is the wrong call. So regardless of how some have twisted and perverted the concept of justice, there is such a thing as actual justice. Real, true, biblical justice. And it's a very good thing. According to Isaiah 30, God is the God of justice. According to Psalm 89, justice is a part of the foundation of his throne. It says justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. In Isaiah 61, it says God loves justice. If God loves it, Maybe we should? Maybe. For those who have heard my question and my claim, and you are already got like little butterflies in your stomach because you're figuring out how you're going to email me or rebuke me afterward, <laughs> I have a little more for you to chew on. The next passage of scripture that I'm going to read, I want to give it some context because I, I don't want anyone taking it out of context, Right? So these words were, were initially meant for the people of Israel during a time of great rebellion, okay? They weren't originally directly written to any of us, but, but, I do believe that it is a message that many of us need to hear. But before I read it, I'm going to give you a verbal seatbelt. Repeat after me. This might not be for me, but it might be for me. Good. Very good. Now, if it brings you any consolation, if this is for you, it's also for me, personally, Seth Owens, because I have found myself missing the heart of God in this area, forgetting the heart of God in this area, and leaning back on my own opinions, my own desires, and the way that I have treated this topic of justice. This is what God says in Amos chapter 5. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. 
To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Hard words. True words in the situation that they were given. Let me present to you Seth's postmodern paraphrase. This is not a universally recognized uh, version of the Bible. Just a thought. I hate your empty religious practices. I will not accept your ingenuine worship. Your phony attempts to draw close to me without obedience do not interest me. Don't sing about how much you love me if it's just lip service. If you don't love people, you don't love me. But... Let real justice flow from your heart into every part of your life and let true righteousness be the thread through everything you say and do. Next, I think we have to define our terms because there is a perverted and twisted definition for justice in the world. I will admit that to you. That's the whole reason why I'm even talking about this today is because there is misunderstanding in our world, in our culture, about what justice is. And I find that in order to find out what a concept really is, in order to find out what God thinks about something, which is a funny way of describing something, because if God thinks about it in such a way, it is just the way it is. Have you ever thought about that? If God thinks it, it just is. So I want to find out how God thinks about justice, because that's the way that justice just is. And so my primary inclination whenever I'm trying to find that is I want to look to the original words that were used in his word and find out what what those words meant in their context. The word justice is used or at least translated as such far more often in the Old Testament than in the New. And so we're going to look at the Hebrew word first. Why Hebrew? Because the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Yeah. The first word or the Hebrew word is mishpat. Now, the concept of mishpat is most commonly translated as justice, judgment, or ordinance. And it can be understood like this. Execution of right judgment so that justice may flourish. We'll say that again. Execution of right judgment so that justice may flourish. Mishpat's closest New Testament Greek equivalent is krisis which is most commonly translated as judgment, but it also is translated as justice. Now, when I say the word judgment, I know there's baggage attached there. I mean, right? We hear the word judgment and we immediately go. Because in our culture and in our language, there are a lot of negative connotations that often are attached to that word. But the way that it's used in scripture is often not negative at all. In fact, Just a very basic definition of the word judgment, even in our world, is a considered decision or a sensible conclusion. Hopefully that's not negative by default. Hopefully decisions are not negative by default. Can I get an amen? Otherwise we are in big trouble. No, for God... Justice and judgment, it appears, at least in the scriptures, the word justice and judgment have this profound connection with one another. They're tied together. 
depending on their context, that's how they would translate it differently. It's not actually a different word oftentimes. It's just a different context. And so a great example of the term judgment, which we all feel a little bit uncomfortable with when you hear that word, judgment being used in a beautiful context that has very good connotation is in Zechariah. Zechariah, I should say. Both in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Let's start in verse 9 of chapter 7 first on the Sky Bible. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Chapter 8. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. What is the word here for judgment? Mishpat. When we look at these occurrences of mishpat and we see what they're surrounded by, we actually begin to get clues about the way that God thinks about justice. And this is a very commonly reoccurring theme in the Old Testament where we see the term justice and we see uh, a, a collection of ideas surrounding that term that help us understand the way that he thinks about it. Some examples start with Isaiah 1, 17. Listen to this. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Then in Jeremiah 22, 3, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. And finally, Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, we can't possibly do an exhaustive, completely thorough treatment of the biblical concept of justice in the 35-minute sermon, and that's not what I'm attempting to do today. But I would suggest that these scriptures are beginning to paint a picture for us of what God's version, meaning the true version, of justice is. What are the commonly reoccurring themes that we're seeing in these passages? Truth, righteousness, kindness, mercy. Wait, mercy associated with justice? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Humility, gentleness, peace, hope, caring for the fatherless, the widow, the foreigner, and the poor. Not just avoiding oppression in our lives, but correcting oppression. Now, I know, and I, and I hate that I even have to pre-call this. I understand that oppression is another word that has been twisted and perverted in our culture. But there is such a thing as real oppression, and God hates it. So don't get it twisted. Just because culture is misdefining oppression doesn't mean that we don't get to pay any heed to what real oppression is and make sure that we are in a path of correcting it. Does that make sense? And finally, that we would abstain from evil, not just in action, but in heart. Now, we can complain about how our culture is, is twisting and perverting justice, or any other word. I mean, it's not just justice. How about the term love? Want to talk a word that's been twisted? Love. Ufta. So we can spend time complaining about the way that culture treats terms, 
Or we can go to God's word, we can seek out what God says about a term, and then we can hold fast to it. How many of you know that it's more effective and more efficient to cling to God's word than to complain about the, what the world is doing? I am so, it's so funny to me. It's so funny to me. Sometimes this is what the church looks like, and I'm a part of it, so I ain't, I ain't calling like I'm not a part of that. I'm a part of it. The world is acting so worldly. Those people who don't know God are acting so much like they don't know God. No, duh! But Jesus came for the sick. Let's not get outraged about sin being sin, about a bunch of people who haven't had the revelation of Jesus Christ walking around acting like they haven't had a revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me remind you that God is a God of justice, real justice. His throne is built on justice, and he loves it. Now, when I look at the original terms from the Bible, and I look at the way that they're contextually placed, I want to give you a, another uh, postmodern paraphrase definition. It's not the Bible. You should not accept it as gospel. I'm just simply giving you something to work with. Fair enough? Make the right call and do something about it. And then you might go, well, Seth, that is a tall order indeed. <laughs> and it is. Making the right call is stinking tough. Making the right call is tough. But let me give you a little guide. When you're wondering what the right call is and if you should do something about it, is it true? Is it righteous? Is it merciful? Is it kind? Is it humble? Will it result in peace? Can it be done gently toward those who are already broken? The bruised reed and the smoldering wick. Will it cause hope to arise inside the hearts of people? Have you considered how it will affect the least among us? And what is your, the deepest intention of your heart in the matter? Now, whoa, Seth, those sound like high standards. Good, they're God's standards. They should be high. Jesus bringing the new, new covenant was not him taking the, um, whatever the bar is, the bar, the standard, and going, oh, you guys are so bad at stuff. Let me just lower this for you. Let me just lower this. You guys are so wretched. Let me just make it so easy because you're just so bad. That is not what he did. Have you ever read Matthew chapter five? Have you read the, the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it said, but I say to you. No, well, that sounds to me. Except here's the beautiful news. He doesn't just raise the bar and go, now try that because we'd be like clotheslining ourselves. <laughs> he raises the bar and he says, but I will not leave you orphans. I will give you my Holy Spirit and he will guide you into all truth. He does not leave us orphans. He raises the standard and then he puts himself inside of us so that we might live up to that standard. Not about any works that you can do, 
but about God himself making a home inside of you so that you might walk according to his ways. We must neither neglect justice because we fear its association with worldliness or be led by our emotions and say that whatever we're feeling on a particular day is justice. Well, I don't like that. That's unjust. Are you sure? Have you consulted God? Have you consulted his word? Have you consulted wise, godly, believing counsel? And I use those adjectives and adverbs very intentionally. How are you discovering if something is unjust or just? I was just about to say a certain news station, but I, I don't even want to go there. Insert news station here, wrong choice. Wrong choice. Instead, the challenge that's been presented to us is to seek the true justice according to his standards, not ours. We can only do this because of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And, I, and the reason why I mention that again is because, church, in the West, we're just too dang uncomfortable with this Holy Spirit. And um, I just got to say that. There's a lot of really, really bad doctrine out there that just puts, <laughs> I've heard it said this way, there's a lot of bad doctrine out there that says, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Scriptures, instead of in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not at all to pit the scriptures and the spirit against each other because they are not pitted against each other. They're in perfect agreement. But what I'm telling you is if you have put the Holy Spirit in your life in this tiny little box that says, he helps me read the Bible, you're missing it. Yes, he helps you read the Bible. He helps you do literally anything that's worth anything. But he is, he wants to be a part of every part of our lives. Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit. The Father gave us the Holy Spirit with the understanding that we can't do anything good without him. We have to believe that. Even as the, even as the Western, postmodern, I don't like supernatural stuff because it makes me feel weird church. If we don't have the Holy Spirit... We, we ain't going to get done, y'all. Thankfully, we do have him. And we just actually just need to acknowledge that and, and welcome him in our lives. Can you imagine if you just had someone in your house all the time and you completely ignored them and they're the, and they're the best guest of all time? They're like, hey, I could do everything. I could do everything. I could help you. I could make everything about this house better. And you're going, you make me feel uncomfortable. No, I literally, I'll, I'll wash the windows, I'll, I'll clean the inside of the cup so the outside could be clean. No, you're just, oh, I don't know. Some of the things you do, sometimes it's off-putting for people. I didn't say this in any of the other gatherings. There's someone here in this room who's uncomfortable with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and this is just for you. Because this isn't, this isn't part of the sermon at all. So we'll move on from it. But, you, but, but, but hear that. You guys want to stand? We're going we're gonna to wrap this baby up. So, 
We can only live out true justice and operate according to it the way that Jesus would have us by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And we can have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, access to all because the veil has been torn. The veil has been torn because Jesus has died and has risen again and now is reigning on the right hand of the Father. That's why. Because he's reigning up there. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he is just rooting us on. He's making intercession for us. He is on our side. And he's going to sit there and he's going to rule and he's going to reign until everything has, put, has been put into subjection under his feet. And we are going to be resurrected. If you're not uncomfortable, if you are uncomfortable with the supernatural right now, I understand how what I said could sound a little bit strange. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about natural and supernatural. If you want to talk about what's real and you want to talk about what's true, and you want to talk about what lasts forever, I encourage you to get comfortable with the supernatural. Let me just encourage you. Again, not a part of the sermon. Someone in here is uncomfortable with the supernatural, and God wants you to hear that. We're going to be experiencing supernatural for a long time, folks. This is a great time to get acquainted with it and welcoming of it. Here's the beautiful thing. Jesus dying on the cross, did you know that that was not only mercy, but that was justice? Oh no, I've always been taught that was just mercy and grace. I hear you. Here's the thing. Divorcing the mercy of God from the justice of, of God is to misunderstand his character. Because he's perfectly both. How can he be perfectly both? Here's the thing. In his mercy, he reached out to you. And when he reached out to you, it was the right call. God is not bound like we are in which he has to break away from justice in order, to, in order to execute mercy. He reached out in mercy, and when he did, it was the right call. It was just. It was the good thing to do because he did it. And I simply want to give an invitation to anyone out there today to accept the mercy and the justice of God. And how do we do that? We look at his son, whom he gave. His son whom he gave in order that he would take on all our mistakes, our sin, our worldliness, our recklessness upon himself, taking really the consequence that was due to us, which is, again, so offensive in the postmodern world. Why, why, would I, why would any consequence be due to me? Because before Jesus, you are really bad. I am really bad without Jesus, like wretched. And we can walk around like we're like, well, no, I'm not that bad. I haven't killed anyone. If we could ever look inside human hearts and to see the evil, putrid, heinous intentions that are inside the heart of man that never quite make it out to the surface because we're afraid of punishment or afraid of not being accepted, we would all know how much we are in need of Jesus. So if you have not given him your trust and your love and your allegiance today, I just want to give you an invitation to begin that journey, to begin the journey of belief, of trust, of discipleship, to follow him. And we want to walk that journey with you. So in a moment, I'm going to give you an invitation, if you want to make that decision to begin your journey with Jesus today, 
to put your trust in him, to put your, your faith, to give him your loyalty. And the reason why I would have you raise your hand in just a moment is not just so that, we can, that, that I can pat myself on the back that someone responded. It's not just so that we can tally that on a sheet somewhere. The reason why we do that is two reasons. Why would we have people raise their hands to make that decision? One, I'm gonna give you a quote from Jesus that you may or may not like, but you should learn to like it because it's Jesus. Confess me before man and I will confess you before the Father. Pretty straightforward. Now let's move on to reason number two. When God, recon- when God reconciled the broken relationship through Jesus between humanity and him, that wasn't the only relationship that he was desiring to reconcile. He was actually looking to reconcile this relationship too. Because when sin entered the world, it didn't just create brokenness here, it created brokenness here. Don't you remember? God, that woman you gave me. Oh, bro. Talk about finger pointing. Talk about driving a wedge between people. That woman you gave me. There's been a wedge, but Jesus has closed the gap. And part of the reason why we want to recognize you if you're making that decision today is because part of the reconciliation is that we do this journey together. There's no version of the New Testament, no version of the Bible, no version of God's way in which we just go and say, well, my relationship with Jesus is just between me and him and no one else needs to know about it. No one else needs to help me. It's very personal. It's religious. It's spiritual. Do you know all those concepts are just from the world? Not from the Bible at all? Don't talk about faith. It's personal. Read the Bible. (laughs) Anyways, soapbox. Getting to my point. If you want to begin that journey today to say that I have not put my trust in Jesus, but I want to today. I want to follow him with all my heart. I just want to invite you to raise your hand right now so that we can celebrate you and so that we can walk with you. I see that hand. I see that hand. Awesome. Brad. Beautiful. I see that hand. I see that hand. Thank you, Jesus. Bless you. Bless you. Anybody else? It's a great day to start. It's a great day to start following Jesus. Wow. If you preach the gospel, if you preach the gospel. Church, I, I want to I pray with these folks who are making this decision today. We're going to lead them in a prayer. If that's the decision that you're making, I just want to encourage you. I'm going to lead you in a prayer only to help, but it has to be from your heart. In church, let's stand in solidarity with our new brothers and sisters. So pray like this. Father, I know that I've sinned. I messed up. And we were separated. But you've made a way for us to be close. For me to be put in right standing with you. Thank you for sending Jesus, your only begotten son, to die in my place, to take away my sin, to restore our relationship. 
Today I come to you and turn from my sin and say that I will follow you with all of my heart. You have my trust, you have my loyalty, and you have my love. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today or in a recommitment to Jesus, we just want to invite you, before you leave today, go pray with my brothers over there. I was almost going to call you guys Brett and Brody, but they're not characters in this moment. It's, it's Zach and Nick. They're wonderful, wonderful guys over there. Sorry. Uh, but make sure and pray with them before you leave. They want to give you a Bible. They want to show you how we can walk with you in this journey. For everyone else, I love you. And uh, I, I pray for each one of you this, that God would remind us of this. The enemy doesn't get to own stuff. He only gets to twist stuff. And that because we are God's children, we get to reclaim these concepts, these ideas, and these words that the enemy has tried to take. And we get to stand on truth. I bless you in the name of Jesus. Go in peace.